You can be opening your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll be there this morning. If you don't have a Bible, we have some uh, ones you can borrow at the back. Blue Bibles on the table. Uh, I encourage you, if you can, to be looking in your Bible as we go along. We'll also provide it on the screen for you. And we seek to serve in doing that, but uh, there's nothing that can beat getting familiar with your Bible and knowing where stuff is and seeing it right there in black and white on the paper. So I encourage you to read along in your Bible, but if not, you can watch on the screen as well. We're going to be focusing on the wonder of Easter, Christ's resurrection. The title of the message today is Easter Changes Everything. As we prepare to hear from the Lord this morning, from His Word, let's go to Him in prayer. Lord, we just thank You for Your Word. Lord Jesus, that Your Word is living and active. That, Lord, it's not just uh, ideas and stories, but it is the very words of God. And through them, You speak to us and You speak life. Just like You spoke and the universe was created, Lord, You speak and create life and accomplish Your will. So, Lord, we're not, we're not here for just any ordinary time. We're here to hear from You the God who speaks and forms universe, universes and changes lives through Your Word. So Lord, we, we thank You for that. And we know it's not because of us, our ability to hear well. It's not because of my ability to speak well. Lord, uh, I'm a sinner in need of grace and I thank You for the grace of Christ. And we thank You for that. It's because of Him and because of Your great love for us that we can stand on this promise and ask You, Lord, by Your Spirit to come and speak to us this morning and be glorified and change our lives for You. We pray and we thank You in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. We had uh, a number of readings this morning. Readings around the wonderful Easter story. I love, uh, I love the Easter story, the, the story there in Matthew uh, that we read and its parallels in the other three Gospels. It is such a, a, an incredible story. That morning, that morning, the, the disciples, the two Marys, going to that tomb and, and expecting to see a lifeless body in a tomb. But instead of a lifeless body, they encounter a risen king. Unexpected and shocking, but wonderful. We read about the story of the guard of soldiers as well. These hardened soldiers, these were Roman elite soldiers most likely who, were, who, who had a reputation in the world over for, for being fearless and brave in the face of death. Uh, they were sort of the sort of guys you wouldn't mess with. Yet we see on the resurrection morning, they encounter this glorious angel and the power of the resurrection and, and they shake and become like dead men. Pass out there front of the tomb. It's an amazing story. It's a dramatic story. And I love the part where the women come and they're expecting to see this a lifeless body. They see a risen king. They behold him. And what do they do? They, they worship him. They grab hold of his feet. They hold on to him and they worship him. And they, they, they are just in awe and wonder at the reality of the risen Christ. Can you imagine what it must have been like to have been there? To, to be going to the grave expecting that you're going to 
go see a lifeless body. And they were the ones who probably were around. The two Marys were around and actually helped take Jesus' body down from the cross, helped wrap it and prepare it with spices and so forth and put it in the tomb. They had been there. They had watched the Savior, their, their expected Messiah, their rabbi, their teacher, their prophet. They had watched Him die on the cross. They had watched Him fail utterly. At least they thought so in His death. They had watched all their dreams and all their expectations and all their hopes be dashed on that Friday. So they came to that tomb because they loved Him. But they didn't come there, I don't think, with hope. They came confused. They came despairing. And they came to that tomb and they found something they didn't expect. They found the Savior risen from the dead, victorious over death, victorious over sin. And, and, and I, don't, I don't think at that moment that they, that they really understood the full implications of what was going on. They, they came and, and they just knew that their rabbi their Messiah, who was dead, is now alive. And that was enough. That was enough to worship. That was enough to be in awe. That was enough to be changed. It must have been like living a dream, really. You didn't expect that at all. You didn't expect to just find Him alive. It must have been like a dream. I, I remember uh, there was, when I was a kid, the, the first time I encountered death, and uh, it was my grandmother. She uh, was... A dear, dear woman. We called her Mima, and uh, and I was young. I was about eight years old, and and uh, she was a sweet woman, one of the sweetest people I've known. Uh, and when I was little, for some reason, I, I well, I think they did this with all my siblings, but in my mind, sometimes I think I was the one treated special. That they would take me to their summer place, and I'd spend a week there, and we'd go to church together. We'd go get ice cream um, at a place called Minix down in Onset, Mass. I don't know if any of you've been there, but it was it was just wonderful to enjoy my relationship with my grandparents. And I, I have memories of Mima. Uh, we, I would get up in the morning, warm summer mornings at the beach house, and there she'd be making breakfast uh, in her beach clothes already, in her bathing suit and flip-flops and making uh, boiled eggs. So when she passed in her early 60s, it was a huge shock for all of us. And for me, as, as a boy, it was a, a huge shock. And I can remember shortly after... Uh, the wake and the funeral, having this vivid dream in my dream. And I got up in the morning and, and we were at our house in Chelmsford and, in my dream and, and I came down and there is Mima at the stove making breakfast. Uh, she was alive and the, the room was full of light and everything and I just remember uh, in the dream talking and she was like, oh no, no, I'm fine. There was some sort of mix up and I just remember the, this sweet dream. I wanted to stay in the dream because I wanted it to be true. But it wasn't. She had indeed passed. I think that Resurrection morning was like a dream, but it wasn't a dream. As tragic as the death had been, even more glorious was the reality that though he had died, though the one that they so loved and honored had died shamefully on the cross, here he was, indeed alive. Better than a dream. He was real. He was alive. And they were, they were blessed and they rejoiced in seeing him. But I, I think as wonderful as it was for them, as glorious as it was at that moment, they were only really just starting to scratch the surface of what it meant that Christ had risen. And what I want to do this morning is dig a little deeper. 
I want us to certainly to feel the same awe that they did that morning, but I want us to start to, to think a little more deeply about the implications of the resurrection, to probe this and to understand, and through understanding and the power of the Spirit, to be transformed. Because the Lord wants us to live in light of the resurrection. He wants us to live our lives very much like Mary and two Marys that morning did as they encountered the Lord. So we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to take some time to to dig there because that's part of where in Scripture, uh, among other places, but particularly the, the truths, the implications of the resurrection are teased out by the Apostle Paul. So let's take a look at 1 Corinthians 15. We'll look at verse 20. I think we have that to project. Starting in verse 20. And we read this. I'll just look at 20 to 23. But it says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. This this whole chapter is just packed full of, of truth about the resurrection. Paul in this particular section is, is talking about the reality that Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The Corinthians were doubting that. They, they didn't understand. And in their culture, the idea was very foreign that, that you would have a bodily resurrection. And so they were struggling. And Paul wants to help them understand about this truth and how key it is. And, and he says, we heard earlier, right before this verse, if, if we just... If, if we have hoped in Christ and He has not been raised, and we are, of all people, most to be pitied, but indeed, He has been raised from the dead. And He says here, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Adam the man brought death. Christ the man, the God-man, brought life. Before we have the wonder of the resurrection, we have the tragedy of the truth that in Adam all die. The horrible reality that in Adam all die. That in this man that God made, and God made in His image, we have died. This man was given every blessing that we could have as humans. He was blessed with God with all the spiritual and natural resources he could need to walk with God. God himself dwelt and had a relationship, an intimate relationship with Adam. He blessed him. He gave him a a gorgeous, wonderful life partner. He gave him everything he needed and he said, Adam, I, I want you just to do one thing. I want you to trust me and obey me with this one thing, this one small thing. You can eat of the fruits. You can enjoy all these things. I want you to fill the earth and subdue it. I want, you, I want you to rule. I want you to enjoy these things. But don't eat of this tree, of this fruit of this tree. One simple command. And we know the rest of the story, right? Adam and Eve, under Adam's leadership, ate of that tree. He rejected a life of intimacy and dependency on God for independence. For really brokenness and fragile independence and empty rebellion. He believed the lie, embraced the lie, 
and experienced the lie, the implications of a lie. He fell away from God and with him all of humanity. He, he as our Father and representative fell. All of us fell with him. Fell apart from God. Fell into sin. Fell into broken relationships. The reality is in Adam all die. All sin in Adam. And therefore all die. Sin brings death. Sin is rejection of God and His goodness and His, His good and right decrees. And we know those decrees summed up in two very compelling commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. We know that. And, and, and really pretty much all humanity says, yes, that is good. Yet the sad reality is that all of humanity falls short of that. Terribly short. In reality, we don't even like to talk about it. We don't like to face this reality that we live in sin and therefore die. We don't like to face the reality that sin is in us and we tend to cover it up. We all do. I do. We don't like to be told and maybe right now even as I'm saying this, you're not very happy. I'm not very happy either talking about it. But it is the truth. We tend to deny it. We tend to... to Hide it. But it is glaringly obvious. Often to people around us. Often to those that are closest to us. God's genius of designing marriage and family to get at this truth. (laughs) Often glaringly obvious to those around us. And it's certainly glaringly obvious to God. He sees all. I don't know if you've been following the news over the past six months or so, but perhaps you've heard the story of Governor Blagojevich from Illinois. You guys know that story where uh, he had to replace President Obama's Senate seat and apparently was willing to uh, be bribed for that and they caught it all on tape. They must have, I don't know how the whole thing went. They were doing an investigation and they had bugs to tape them and they heard it all. Can you imagine being Governor Blagojevich and all of a sudden you're realizing that stuff I said in my office now is out there? And it's not just like at at the DA's office or whatever, it's on the Internet and it's on CNN and everybody's hearing what I said in my office. What about you? What about me? What if there were tapes in our home? What if there was a tape just around us during the day? And everybody here, not only just everybody here, we, we put them on the Internet and play those tapes for everyone to hear. Would we deny our sin at that point? I hope not. What if there was some way, actually, not just to tape what we said, but to actually record our thoughts? What passed through our mind? Not just the things, not just the fluttering by type thoughts, but the thoughts that were grabbed a hold of and became our own. And we thought about and meditated on. And there was some way to put those on the Internet and on CNN. What would you do? Run and hide in Greenland or something, you go away somewhere and change your name. I would. What if there was a way to actually probe all your motives, all my motives, and to tease out every motive and every action, and to list out? Now, there'd be good motives in there. I don't mean to say there wouldn't be good motives. But all the other motives would be there, too. All those mixed motives that you and I have pretty much all the time. And if we could put a list on the wall here, Here are Paul Buckley's latest things that he's done, and here are his motives. All of them known. I would be horrified. And you would too. 
God sees all those things. There's no hiding from Him. It doesn't have to be on CNN. It doesn't have to be on the Internet. God sees it all. And if we are brutally honest with ourselves, which is hard to do, but we must do it. We must admit that we are fallen as well. We are sinful. And the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that the wages of sin is death. The wage for the sin is separation. Death ultimately is to be apart from God. It's to receive the penalty of a separated life from God, physically and spiritually. And this is the sad reality that is the context for the wonderful news of Christ. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. In Adam we have all sinned and all fallen short. And there's death everywhere. And we live in a world that's sadly full of death. Now, I don't like to be morbid on Easter morning, but I think part of the joy of Easter morning is first facing this reality. Facing the reality of death and seeing that there is something to cure it. It is tragic. It was tragic when I was eight years old to watch my dear, sweet, young grandmother die. And that was my first taste that I remember. And I, I, I was shocked then. And I've lived... 35 years or whatever it is, plus that, more than that, since then, and I've seen death. I've seen young, vibrant men be taken. I've watched moms with children die. I've watched boys be be taken from parents and the grief of parents. I've watched these things. I've watched infants who barely have seen the light of day pass. And you have too. We've seen it. And I know your thought is probably like mine. When I see these things, when we see it, when we look around and see our brokenness, there's something in all of our hearts, I believe, that's from God that says, there's got to be something better than this. There's something terribly wrong with this to watch my grandmother, made in God's image, full of good things, who's been a blessing to our family, suddenly, unexpectedly, snatched. She was taken like that. My dad was with her actually at the moment, um, visiting her. She lived in Boston. She had a sudden heart attack. She knew what was going on. My father actually picked her up to take her to the car to the hospital. She kissed him on the cheek and said goodbye. And she was gone. There's got to be something better than this. This sin and death affects us personally. It affects us as a culture as well. And if you take time to read Romans 1-3, to you'll just see this testimony of not only the death of individuals and the the death of families in terms of the the destruction of sin, but the the destruction of whole societies. Romans 1-3 to is testimony to the sad reality that in sin, and when sin is pursued, entire cultures die and perish. Entire cultures wander away from God and in that place apart from God and apart from His truth, they fall deeper and darker into sin. And cultures that were at one point perhaps robust and noble become atrocious. Luther's Germany and the many many things that went on there and the blessings of that, Hitler's Germany, case in point. And you can look at many other cultures as well. The sad reality that it is that in Adam 
all die. There's got to be something better than this. Thank God for Jesus Christ. Thank God for Jesus Christ. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits in at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Jesus' resurrection to eternal life is our resurrection to eternal life. He died on the cross for his people's sins. And all those who put their hope in him, who turn from self sufficiency and self and sin to Christ, receive the forgiveness that the cross purchased in his holy death to pay for sins and receive the victory of the resurrection morning as well. When you come to Him in faith, you are united with Him in His death and resurrection. So His resurrection on that Sunday morning is your resurrection on that day that will come soon. His resurrection is yours. There's life. There is something better than this. There's forgiveness. There's new life. And His resurrection is a firm and solid guarantee of this. That the entire universe and all who belong to Him will be renewed and glorified and experience a new, eternal, and perfect experience as it was intended originally. No more sin. No more sickness. No more sorrow. No more sadness in His presence. His resurrection is your resurrection. He is the first fruits, it says here. Christ, the first fruits. Then at His coming, those who belong to Him. He's the first fruits. He's the first part of the harvest. He's the first one to, to be raised from the dead. And the idea of first fruits is that the next fruits come as well. First fruits implies that there's a harvest to follow. It's springtime, I think. And one of the joys of springtime is, is gardening. I don't do a whole lot. I have at, t- at times. My, my wife Peg does most of the gardening. But it's wonderful when it starts to get a little warmer and you can start turning the soil, start planting. planting. Uh, some folks are very diligent. They actually start their seeds in the house and grow them. Anyone here do that? Anybody? Good. Good for you. I, I really admire those that do that. Uh, it's a time to start doing that, to planting, start uh, looking for the reappearance of perennials and so forth. Uh, and some of our favorite things to grow are tomatoes as a family. We love tomatoes, mostly because we like to eat them. That's really what it's about. There's nothing like a garden-ripe tomato. And, and uh, if you've either started your, your plants or you're going to buy them started, uh, you can't put them in until May, right? Sometime in May, depending on how brave you are. Uh, at some point in May, you can put them in. And then sometime around late July, you start to get your first tomatoes, right? They grow, and maybe late July, you see a tomato. And for us as a family, that's always a joy, see those first tomatoes and, and to, to pluck them and pick them, even maybe perhaps before they're entirely ripe. And, and as a family, we often take them and we put them on our windowsill uh, to ripen and, and, and in some ways as a display. Look, look, tomatoes. We've got tomatoes coming. And they don't start to come in until August. And then they actually, uh, uh, when I remember, they, they start coming in August and they come in September. You can even have tomatoes still in October. We've had October tomatoes as well. But those first fruits are always a promise of something coming, of that tomato harvest 
that's to come, and, and the joy of enjoying good garden tomatoes. Christ is like that. He's the first fruits. But it's a little different, because those first tomatoes aren't necessarily the best ones. But it is, there is a promise. In some ways, Christ is maybe more like this. Imagine that you plant your tomatoes, you put them in in May, and then you see sometime in late July the first tomato. It's this incredible, humongous, beautiful red tomato. This big. It's incredible. It comes and it's there and you realize one morning, there's that tomato. Well, it's amazing. The first one. And you take that baby and you put it, put it right in the center of your kitchen table. And, and everybody in the family comes and you invite the neighbors over. Come and see my first fruit tomato. It's amazing. And just imagine what that would be like. You have this incredible tomato. I, I know what I'd be thinking. I'd be thinking, wow, I can't wait to see the rest of the harvest. I'm going to be having barbecues all summer long and inviting people over so we can have those sliced tomatoes on hamburgers. And, and, I, and I just, wow, I can, I can be giving tomatoes to everybody, all my friends and my family. We'll have a tomato party and we'll do tomato sauce and we'll do all this stuff. But that's what it would be like. That's what Christ's resurrection is like. He's that. Incredible. Wonderful tomato, but even more. He's the Savior. He's the Lord. He has risen. And He's the first fruits. He's the promise, the sure guarantee of the rest of the harvest that we ourselves in Christ are going to receive glorified bodies. We ourselves are going to have our sins and all the implications of our sins washed away, wiped away. We will be changed. We will experience the wonder of the resurrection ourselves. That's what Easter morning is about. Easter morning, the the truth of the resurrection comes and replaces death with life and promises us that life. Because He has risen. And really, the time between Jesus' resurrection and His ultimate return to finish the harvest is really, in a lot of ways, mop-up time. He's already risen. He's already done it. And, and if you read the text and you read through what, what is going on in 1 Corinthians 15, it says in verse 20, uh, 23, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. That's when the final harvest comes. It says, then comes the end when he delivers his, the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. And then this verse, 25, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. He reigns right now to finish the job. And so part of what he's doing is he's bringing this truth of his death and resurrection and the power that comes with it to all nations. He says elsewhere that that the gospel, this good news of the kingdom, will be preached to all nations, all tongues, all peoples throughout the earth are to hear of this good news. And there is to be a solid witness, a solid body of people in each place and throughout the world who are transformed and being transformed by the Gospel. Because we see in Revelation, there is people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation is there. So He's still doing that work through us. And in the end will come. He will return and He will come and He will deal with His enemies. He will deal with those who have refused His reign who have refused His mercy and grace. He will undo all His enemies. They will be undone. They will be dealt with by Him. 
every opposing authority and power will be dealt with. He will finish the job. And then, the final enemy to be vanquished will be death. No more death. Only eternal life for His people. Never to be altered again. Never to be changed. In His presence, the new heaven, the new earth, together, they come together in Revelation, and God's people live with Him on the earth as it was meant to be. Forever. That's what Easter morning is about. That is the truth. The truths that flow from that. Easter changes everything. Easter changes everything. It changes death to life and it changes this current life into abundant life as well. One more section I want to touch on. We'll we'll actually close by celebrating communion. At the end of this chapter, Paul brings to the Corinthians a call to respond to this truth. Look with me at verse 58. I think we have it to put up as well. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. It says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, in light of all these things, all these truths about the resurrection, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. In light of the resurrection, Paul calls us to this abundant life that is to be ours in Christ in light of this truth. And there are three things, three descriptions of this life that he has here. This is a life that is steadfast, immovable, and abounding. Steadfast, immovable, and abounding. Because there is a resurrection. Because the victory is guaranteed. Because there is an eternal future for every believer. Because our life, our faith, and our life of faith are to be truly rewarded. Because our faith is not based on a vain fantasy, but reality, a sure historical and universe changing reality. Because of all these things, we are to live steadfast, immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord. This Easter morning, are you steadfast? Immovable? Abounding? God wants you. You have given your life. If you have trusted Christ, turn to Him. And if you haven't, He wants you as well. Even this morning, turn to the resurrected Christ. Find forgiveness. Find life. God wants you to live a life that is steadfast, immovable, abounding. There is no reasonable alternative to the wonder of the resurrection. It is the only right and reasonable response to the fact that Christ, God the Son, the God-Man, has died our death for us and been raised to life so that we might have life in Him. There's no other reasonable reasonable reply to what He has done. He has done it. And we are to live steadfast, immovable, abounding in this truth. Now, 
Don't get me wrong. Life deals some heavy blows. This truth is not apart from this reality. The Bible doesn't pull any punches on that truth. This isn't pie in the sky by and by. This is truth in the midst of the context that life deals some heavy blows. In Scripture, the storms and tragedies of life come on both houses. The one built on the sand and the one built on the rock of Christ and His truth. Both houses. Jesus never promises to remove trials and temptations from our lives. Yes, indeed, He does promise to be sovereign over them and to not allow you to be subject to anything that you can't endure. He is Lord over your trials and temptations. No matter how severe they might be, He is Lord. And He is there. His grace is sufficient. That's the promise, but they do come. And if you are a believer... You've been promised trials and persecutions. That's the teaching of Scripture. For a matter of fact, the reality is that life as a believer is perhaps harder than life as an unbeliever. Herod had a bit easier life, at least in this life, than Jesus did, did he not? Because as a believer, you're promised this extra dose of persecution and hardship. Now, amidst all that is life abundant, though. The way that we deal with life because of Christ's death and resurrection transforms those trials and temptations into wonderful opportunities to be transformed into Christ's image. So life will deal heavy blows. There will be storms. And at times these storms will seem to inundate us. We will feel like we're drowning. Oh Lord, how can this happen? There will be times where you will feel overwhelmed by the storms of life and you will just not know whether you're coming or going. But there is one that has endured the storm for you. Christ endured the storm. He endured the raging storm and was fully consumed by it. He was undone by the storm of bearing sin on the cross. He was truly overwhelmed. He received the full brunt. The worst case scenario fell on Christ. Worse than anything any human would ever experience. He received not only the physical hardship, but the spiritual hardship of sin and the punishment, the holy justice of God for sin on Himself. He was drowned by His circumstances. He did fail Utterly. He was entirely overcome and He died on the cross. Separated from the Father. So that you and your storms will never be separated from the Father. So that He will always be there. He was abandoned so that you might never be abandoned. And so that your storms can be transformed into means of working glory in and through your life. For your joy and pleasure in Christ and for His glory and blessing to those around you. And I know many of you, I know the storms that you're going through. And I know it seems overwhelming at times. But your strength and your hope is in Christ who went through the storm and His death and resurrection. Those truths together 
are what's going to get you through the storm and what's going to create in you something truly worthwhile in Him. No matter what life may bring, we have Him and our future is guaranteed in Him. He has been raised from the dead and He offers us this guarantee and this promise. At the end of it, 